A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is the Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIBC. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. Get a little bit of a late start since we had uh, the post-game coverage of the IU game. IU game went into overtime, went a little longer than usual. Um, but, man, exciting game. <laughs> if you follow and care about IU football, man, this is, this is kind of a fun season so far. They've had three come-from-behind victories. You can argue that some of the competition, including Idaho and today Western Kentucky, yeah, they're not Big Ten teams, but hey, uh, a win is a win, and IU's been known to to drop some of those games uh, historically. So three and O is three and O, and it's fun. Kid Campbell hit a fifty-one yard field goal to win it in overtime. Uh, IU blocked a field goal uh, when Western Kentucky uh, had a scoring chance, also in overtime. IU had to score a touchdown, a two-point conversion in the final minute to uh, to tie it up and force overtime. So it, it, if you like football, it was an exciting game. We're, uh, we're sorry we missed out on the first half hour of the Gun Guy Show, though, because there's a lot to talk about, as there always is. First thing I want to do is give a shout-out to uh, the great folks who are in the sold-out uh, Essentials of Indiana Gun Law class uh, that we taught at Indy Arms today. was there at uh, 9 a.m., went a little bit long. We went till about 1.45 but it was a great uh, group of folks who were in that class. They were excited to be there. There was a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of questions, uh, a lot of hypotheticals, uh, a lot of great discussion. And that's what really makes that class fun. We've got another one of those, by the way, coming up November 5th. So check that out at tactical-firearms.com. It's probably about a third to a half uh, sold out already, but we've still got plenty of seats. But these Classes always sell out. The class today was full, and they typically are. So, um, so, so check that out if you're interested. It's tactical-firearms.com. In the meantime, uh, what's going on here locally? You know, last week's show, I had just gotten back, literally got off the airplane, coming back from Gunsight, Gunsight Academy out in Paulden, Arizona, what I consider to be the premier firearms training facility in the world. Um, got on an airplane, uh, got off an airplane, I should say, had to, to collect my gun, my luggage, uh, get to my car in long-term parking, and get down here and get on the air. It was a little bit tight, but we made it. We ended up talking quite a bit about traveling with firearms. And I got to tell you, after that show last week, the the last thing I got into, you know, I talked about reciprocity and I talked about the need to understand the, the laws of local jurisdictions where you may travel to. But uh, at the very end of the show, I started going through the process of how you go about uh, declaring a gun in your checked bags at the airport. And we were down to the very last segment and uh, unfortunately had, to, had to, to rush through that a little bit. And I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of people contact me through social media or emails to my office uh, saying, hey, man, you know, could you go back and revisit that? Because... Um, you rushed through it a little bit, and, and I was a little confused on uh, exactly how that process works. So I want to go back, and, and, I, and I was. When I, when I got off the air, I felt a little bad that I may not have given it the treatment that it deserved. 
and and again, this time of year, uh, you know, uh, kids are going to be coming up on fall break. Uh, there's going to be Thanksgiving break. There's going to be get, we're going to get into the holidays before you know it. <laughs> Don't roll your eyes at me. It's a simple truth. Uh, and folks are going to be traveling. And yes, you can travel. Yes, you can fly uh, with your firearm. And it's funny because I talked about it a little bit in my Essentials of Indiana Gun Law class today. And you can see it in people's faces. It's like, ooh, man, take a gun to the airport, the airport, uh, check a gun, you know, deal with TSA, deal with the airline folks. Uh, But I got to tell you, I'm someone who's done this a couple of dozen times because I've traveled fairly often to go to training courses out of state. Or I've just chosen to take a personal firearm with me when I'm traveling by air. And it's something you can legally do. There is a process to do it. Now, it is a crime to have a gun in your checked bag that you do not declare. It's a crime, certainly, to try to take a gun through security in your carry-on. That's a call I get several times every year where somebody just forgets there's a gun in whatever bag, whatever uh, case, whatever it is they're using as a carry-on. They just forget there's a gun in there. They may have used that same bag or case to go to the range, and they forget to take their gun out. They may have used that bag when they drove somewhere where they could legally have their gun in that bag when they drove, say, on business, on a business trip. Well, now they get a quick flight come up, that comes up. They throw some essentials into the same bag, head to the airport, forgetting there's a gun there. So that's a crime. It's class A misdemeanor. It's a crime if you knowingly and intentionally do it. So the Marion County Prosecutor's Office has developed a process where they're really pretty good about sitting down, interviewing people, if you're represented by counsel, and and talking them through what exactly happened. And they're pretty good about not pursuing a prosecution of you if, in fact, they believe that this was unintentional. Because the statute says you have to knowingly and intentionally have a gun available to you as you go through security in your car- with your carry-on. But the process of checking a gun in, in, in your bags is really, it's intimidating to a lot of people, but it really shouldn't be. And, and again, I rushed through this last week, so I wanted to come back and revisit it at the beginning of this show. First of all, you have to have the gun in a locked, hard-sided container. You can use a, a hard-sided container with a combination lock. In my experience, it's been a little easier to deal with this with padlocks with a key. I wear my key around my neck so I have it easily available to me, uh, no matter who might ask me for that key, because this comes up. So that's being a locked, hard-sided container. Hard-sided means you can't pry it open. You can't pry open either end, for instance, and be able to look in and see the firearm. It has to really lock up, and 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 that has to be there. Therefore, hard-sided. My rifle case that I use to travel, that I use to go to gunsight. I took an AR-15, uh, several mags, and a handgun, all in a rifle case. It has four padlocks on it. And it's a nice case, Pelican case, tight locks up nice and tight. Nobody's going to get into it without cutting all the locks off of it. It's going to take some time and some equipment. So locked, hard-sided case. Gun has to be unloaded. Very important. Because in the Indy, the way the process works at the Indianapolis airport is you walk up to baggage claim, just like you're going to check in and check bags like you typically would. You can't do this at the curb. 
know, there's a, a way, at least historically, there was always a way to check bags, curbside check-in. Remember that out in front of the airport? Well, you can't do any of that. You have to go into baggage to the ticket counter where you check bags. You then walk up and say, I want to declare an unloaded firearm in my check baggage. Now, that can be in a locked, hard-sided container that you have in your suitcase. For instance, you can take your personal firearm. If you're traveling somewhere where it's legal for you to possess that firearm, you can have that locked, hard-sided container right in your suitcase with the rest of your stuff. Or you can have a dedicated case like I used going to Gunside. It's a rifle case. Either way, it has to be unloaded. What about ammunition? Well, TSA regs say you can take a small amount of ammunition, and some of the airlines have their own limitations. So I wouldn't plan on more than a box or two. And typically it has to be in its original container or some other ammunition case designed to hold ammunition. And it has to be fully encased. Can you have loaded mags, loaded magazines in your, in your, in your hard-sided case with your gun? No, not unless they're fully encased somehow. And you're asking for a hassle with TSA, as I'll just tell you right now. If you try to take loaded mags in your hard-sided locked case with your unloaded firearms, you're going to get hassled by TSA, I'm just telling you. It's not worth it. You can load your mags when you get to where you're going. You can take small amounts of ammunition. They really want it in its original factory box, in the cardboard box. And you can have ammunition in the same hard-sided case with your gun. That's okay. Again, small amounts. Different airlines define that different ways. In my class, I was going to a gun site. We shot 1,250 rounds. Can I take 1,250 rounds of ammunition on the airplane with me? Of course not. Absolutely not even close. So what do you do? You ship it out there or you buy it when you get there. And a lot of the training facilities like gun site, they have an ammunition package you can buy from them. Sometimes it can be a little pricey. You might get a better deal yourself. You got your ammo already. Can you ship it out to an FFL, for instance, or to the facility? Yeah, a lot of training facilities, including Gunsight, will let you do that. But you can't take it with you, not in those kind of quantities. So you walk in, you say, I want to declare an unloaded firearm in my check bags. Okay, the, the person behind the, the, the ticket counter there at the airport, they'll, they'll weigh it, make sure you're under the weight limit. And then they'll typically have you open the case there at the ticket counter. Plan on getting a little extra attention from the people behind you in line. I open my case, and there I've got a, a an AR-15 and a, and a handgun in this case. And you hear people kind of ooh and ah, like, oh, my God, this guy's got a rifle. He's putting on the airplane. Well, yes, I do. And, yes, it's legal to do that. They have you confirm that it's unloaded. If you have any lithium batteries, say you got a weapon-mounted light, on your AR or on your pistol. They'll ask you, are there any lithium batteries in your light? If you say yes, they'll make you take them out. So it's a good idea to take your batteries out. If they don't want lithium batteries on your gun in check bags. So do that ahead of time. You, you sign a little placard that says this gun is unloaded under penalties for perjury. You declare that. You sign it. They have you put that little signed placard right in the case with the rifle. And typically then they, they have you lock it back up. Then in Indy, different airports do this different ways. In Indy, the bag then disappears, like a typical bag does. They're on the conveyor belt behind the ticket counter. 
Then they give you a little piece of paper, though, that says, I have declared a unloaded and unloaded firearm in my check bag. You give that to the first TSA person that you see there in the secure area of the airport, the same person you show your boarding pass and ID to as you're going into security. They then tell you, go through security and then report to the TSA kiosk that's on the other side of the x-ray machine, the metal detector, and in the secure area there at the airport. There's a little kiosk, TSA, right on the other side. So expect a little extra love and attention, a little extra affection from the TSA folks as you're going through. They may very likely direct you over to go through a little extra pat down. That's fine. You do all of that, then you, in fact, report to the TSA kiosk. They wait for a phone call from behind closed doors on whether or not they want your key. Almost always they have wanted my key. They're this last time going to Gunsight in Indy. Actually, they said they didn't. Okay, fine. Then you go get on your airplane. If they want your key, they typically do. That means they, they want to open your case and do some further inspection of your firearm. And that almost always happens. So just expect them to want your key. So you hand them the key. They disappear back behind closed doors. They're gone however many minutes. They come back, hand you your key back, and tell you to go get on the airplane. I think they're back there confirming that the gun's unloaded. But who knows what they're doing? They could be checking serial numbers. I honestly do not know. Somebody who, uh, current or former employee of TSA, I'd love to know exactly what they're doing there. Most likely, they're just confirming that the gun's unloaded. Then they come back and tell you to get on your airplane. You do that. I give myself at least an extra 45 minutes if I'm checking a gun, over and above what I give myself in terms of a little cushion time to go get through security and get on my airplane anyway. I add another 45 minutes to that. If, you, if you're a person that likes to be at the airport two hours before your flight, great. Then do two hours and 45 minutes if you're checking a gun. Because you can get held up for quite a while. Different airports handle this different ways. For instance, when I was coming back, I was flying out of Phoenix. You go up, you declare your gun, your hard-sided case. They do not have you open it there. I take that back. Yes, they do have you open it there. But you put this little placard in it that says it's unloaded. They have you lock it back up. And then the baggage counter person actually escorts you down to the TSA kiosk. You wheel your gun down there. You give them the key. They open it up. They do their inspection right there. Then they give it back to the baggage counter person. You can't touch it again. Then it disappears. Then the, 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 the process starts over. Now, what happens at the other airport when you arrive, your gun will not go on to, or at least it's not supposed to, go on the uh, the conveyor belt, right, uh, and in baggage claim. Not supposed to do that. It's supposed to go to the baggage office for that particular airline that you're on. You go to the baggage office. If you go out and look on the carousel, it's not going to show up. Your other bag will, if, that you don't have the gun in, you got to go to the ticket office, show ID, get your gun, go home, come to the radio station, do radio. That's how it works. So I took a lot more time going through the process. In fact, producer Carl's been telling me to shut up here for about six minutes. So we're going to have a little bit of a short segment when we come back. But I, but I rushed through it last time. Didn't give you really the information I think you need to kind of demystify what that's really like 
and really, it's not a tough process at all. It's not difficult to go through uh, once you've done it, especially once you know how to do it and you have a lot of confidence. You're not going to get held up. You're not going to get whisked off by TSA. You're not going to manac- be put in manacles and put in jail. You can do it and, uh, and have your gun with you when you travel, recognizing, of course, you need to be legal where you possess that gun. Where it is, wherever it is you're traveling to. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. We've got a very short segment here because I went quite long on the last one. Last thing I want to say on traveling with your firearms, particularly flying with your firearms, what happens if you get diverted to an airport where it is not legal to possess your firearm? What if you get diverted? And this has happened to people, and it's gotten a lot of publicity. Let's say you get diverted to Newark, New Jersey. And it's the last flight in. There's no f- more flights out. So they're going to put you in, up at the airport hotel. And they say, hey, come get your bag with your gun in it so you can stay at the hotel. You're going to come back and fly out in the morning. Do not pick up that bag with a gun in it. Do not do it. People have done that, and people have gone to jail because they don't care that you got diverted and it wasn't your fault. So, last thing I'll say on that. Right now, we're at the top of the hour. It's time to take a break. We'll be right back with hour number two of the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back for hour number two of the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. I'll tell you, right now, we've got Brian on hold on the phone lines, and we welcome your calls as well. Give us a call, questions or comments. I was just talking about traveling with firearms. Kind of wrapped up that decision when I sort of a gave it an abbreviated treatment there at the end of last show, so I wanted to do that. But uh, questions about that or anything else firearm-related, give us a call, 317-239-9393. That's 317-239-9393. We're always happy to take your calls here on the Gun Guy Show. Um, I'll tell you what, let's just go ahead and go to the phone lines because Brian has been holding for some time. And, Brian, you had a question for us. Yeah, I had a question. So my grandfather had owned a Western Auto Hardware store and he had sold guns and he passed away in 93. So we shut the store down and everything, but we have all these gun sales forms and I know we have to keep them for so long. I just didn't know how long, because there's some from back in the 60s. And I was wanting to know because I found them the other day cleaning the garage that I had them in boxes. I was wanting to know how long do I have to hold him for? Well, if if he so, I assume he was a federal firearms licensee, right? He was a licensed firearms dealer. Yes. Okay. Well, when a when an FFL closes, Brian, the way that process is supposed to work is uh, the um, the FFL is supposed to send the ATF that paperwork. Um, you're supposed to keep it for 25 years, so that answers your question on some of the really old stuff. Um, but anything that's uh, within that time period from the time of the transaction, um, then that's supposed to go to ATF, and ATF uh, maintains those documents. And I'm talking about the 4473 forms, which I'm sure is what you're talking about as well. So, again, the obligation, I believe it's 25, it may be 20, but it's 20 or 25 that they're supposed to keep those records. If they close, they're supposed to send those records to the ATF. The ATF then keeps them. In fact, there's been quite a bit of concern as to whether or not the ATF is using those records to build some kind of a database on gun owners because they're not supposed to keep records on approving or disapproving any given gun purchase. 
And that's actually in the Firearm Owners Protection Act of 1986 that the government, the federal government, is prohibited from maintaining a database of guns or gun owners. However, if they receive those 4473s and then index them, or let's say they make a computerized searchable database of those records that they get from closed gun stores, are they in fact creating a database of those purchases which, again, they're keeping those records instead of the gun store because the gun store closed. That's their excuse. But are they using them then to actually create a database and get around the Firearm Owners Protection Act prohibition of the federal government maintaining a database? And I'll tell you something that fits right in on that is our next topic, which is that the credit card industry— have created a new process. And and look, the credit card industry, and I, and I don't want to lump them all together, and there are some companies that are better and some companies that are worse, but the credit card industry, to a very large degree, in, including some particular banks and credit card processors, have not been particularly friendly to gun-related businesses over some time. For instance, if you're a regular listener of The Gun Guy Show, You've heard me talk about how we've tried the last two sessions of the Indiana General Assembly, and we will certainly try again this year, that is this next session, starting January 2023, to pass a bill that says that the credit card industry, the financial institutions, may not discriminate against firearm-related businesses. Why have we introduced that bill? We've introduced it because there are multiple examples, and I've witnessed this, I've experienced this perfectly personally, which is some credit card companies will say, we will not process payments for your business because you're a firearms instructor. Won't do it. The the credit card processor Square will come flat out and tell you, no, you you teach firearm safety, you teach firearm proficiency. We will not process your your credit card payments. I've had friends who own gun stores. In fact, I had a gun shop roundtable, we called it, where I had five different owners of gun stores, all friends of mine that came in probably a year and a half, two years ago. It was really during COVID. And we, we were talking about a lot of things, including what they were experiencing do, during COVID. Were they able to get ammunition? What's the supply chain looking like for guns? All that stuff got really wonky really fast during COVID. And one of the things I asked them as we got beyond discussing their experiences during COVID is, have you had any problems with credit card companies? And every single one of them said, oh, my God, yes. And banks, banks had closed their accounts just saying, we don't want to do business with you. So we had a a bill that says, look, we're not going to tell you how to do business, financial institution, bank, credit card company, whatever you might be. But if you discriminate against the firearm industry, if you refuse to adopt a policy that says you will not discriminate against the firearm industry, then we, the state of Indiana, will not reward you by doing business with you. So if you want to do business, if you you want to process credit card payments to the BMV or whatever other government agency of the state of Indiana, Guess what? You can't do that. We will not enter into contracts with you. We will not do business with you if you refuse to adopt a policy saying you will not discriminate against the firearms industry. So the financial industry, the financial institutions, including credit card companies, 
Many of them, including banks, have turned on gun owners and turned on gun-related businesses in the past. What we've now seen, in addition to that historical problem, which I've seen for quite some time, for several years, here much more recently, within the last week, week and a half, we've seen the credit card industry and several of the major credit card companies themselves, we're talking about Visa, MasterCard, and American Express, have now gone to the International Organization for Standardization. What's that? That's just what it sounds like. It's an organization that oversees credit card processing, credit card industries. And they've now created a new, it's called a merchant category code, specific for gun stores. So what does this mean? This means that if you go in and use your credit card, and I'm sure this applies to your Visa or MasterCard debit card as well, linked to your checking account, that because you use that card in a gun store, in a federal federal firearms licensee, they're going to assign a code to that transaction that can then be tracked. And the ostensible reason for this, the excuse for this is, well, we want to track, we want the financial industry to track, quote-unquote, suspicious transactions Now, ponder that a minute. If I go into Indy Arms, okay, I taught my gun law class at Indy Arms this morning. Let's say I'm leaving Indy Arms, and I'm just feeling magnanimous, and I want to buy everybody in my class a year-long pass to the range at Indy Arms. This did not happen, and it's doubtful I would spend that kind of money. But let's say hypothetically. It's a class of, we had 30-some people in there, 35 people. And it was filled to capacity. You know what? I'm going to buy everybody a range pass for a year. I'm just feeling magnanimous. So I use my credit card for however much money that is, a couple $3,000, I'm sure, and buy everybody a range pass. I didn't buy a gun. I didn't buy ammunition. But I used my credit card. Under this system, it's going to show that I spent Let's say it's, excuse me, $3,000. It'll just show I had a $3,000 transaction at a gun store. Is that quote-unquote suspicious? And according to whom? Who makes that decision? And they say, well, we want gun stores to help in flagging, or credit card companies, I should say, to assist in flagging suspicious transactions, flagging and reporting. That's what these people are saying. We want the financial industry to assist flagging and reporting suspicious transactions. All they know, because this merchant category code just says I used my credit card in a gun store. That's all it said. It doesn't say what I bought. It doesn't say I bought five guns and a 1,000 rounds of ammunition. And what the hell does it matter if I did? What if I just wanted five new guns? Does that mean I'm a mass shooter? Does that mean I'm a criminal? Does that mean I should have... Homeland Security knocking on my door. And they said they want them to flag and report. Report to whom? ATF? FBI? And then what do they do with that information? I'm going to talk more about this. I'm going to talk about what I think is the actual motivation behind this. Because what the hell the definition of suspicious is, and how they go about reporting that, and to whom, and how will that information then be used, assumingly, by the government... All answers raises fascinating questions. 
And again, I ask again, and I want someone from the financial industry or the the gun control proponents in Congress who've been pushing this for some time, I want them to explain to me how anyone, whether it's the credit card company itself or some government entity, whether it's ATF or FBI or Homeland Security or who knows who, is going to define what's suspicious. And then again, what they do with that. Knock on my door. Well, Mr. Relford, we see here you spent $3,000 at Indy Arms. Yeah, I did. Get off my porch. I mean, how exactly does that go? Well, I'm going to have somebody from Homeland Security following me around. They're going to bug my phones. How does that work? But there's more to this. I'm going to get into that after this break. Right now, we're taking a break. I'm going to continue to take your calls throughout the broadcast. Give us a call, 317-239-9393. That's 317-239-9393. We're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And we're talking about this new merchant category code that's been assigned to gun stores by this organization called the International Organization for Standardization. And this is something that that oversees the credit card industry to a large degree. And you've got major credit card companies like MasterCard, American Express, Visa saying, oh, yeah, we're going to use this. So what this is designed to do is allow, and and by definition, and, and in fact, this is the stated purpose And a lot of gun control groups, whether it's the Gifford campaign, they've been pushing for this, other gun control groups, including the Brady campaign, people who despise your Second Amendment rights are pushing for this. Well, why do you suppose that is? A lot of people are saying, well, this is designed to create a database of gun purchases. Well, that's not quite true because assigning a code to the store, the gun store, as I was mentioned earlier, doesn't reveal what it is you bought. It just says you spent money at a gun store. You could have been buying T-shirts or cleaning supplies. Or my silly example of buying a bunch of memberships at the range, where a gun store also has a range. It just says I spent X amount of money at that particular gun store. It doesn't say what I bought. But it can certainly be used to create a database of purchases at gun stores. A little bit of speculation can lead to what it is I've bought there based on the purchase amounts. Now, they're guessing to a large degree, but you can see people have that motivation. But I'll come back to the question I raised before the break. And again, it's a rhetorical question. But what the hell qualifies as suspicious? Ooh, Guy Relford spent $3,000 at Indy Arms. So what? The fact that I made that purchase at a gun store? Because, by the way, let's say I am buying guns. Or a gun or multiple guns. What do I have to do at a gun store in order to buy the gun? Pass a background check. What the hell is suspicious about me buying a gun or even multiple guns if I had to pass a background check to do so? Explain that to me. Why is that suspicious? What if I buy two guns or three guns? Well, let's say I'm going to gun site, and I just took a class that required both a rifle and a handgun. I had a rifle and a handgun I wanted to take. What if I didn't? Say, so, you know what? I want to upgrade. I want to upgrade my AR-15. I want to upgrade my pistol because I want to. I want to. I want to go to gun site and have the highest quality 
firearms I, I can have. Going to take a, a rigorous course, five straight days, 1,200 rounds with the AR. I want to make sure I've got a reliable gun. I want a new gun. I want to upgrade my gun so I buy a rifle and a pistol. Because I'm going to gun site. I want to be well-trained. I want to be well-regulated. You've heard me discuss that term, right, in the language of the Second Amendment. Well-regulated means well-trained, well-equipped. So in my, my desire to be well-regulated, as the founders of this country wanted me to be, as they said very clearly in the Second Amendment, I buy two new guns, new rifle, new pistol. Is that suspicious? Should a credit card company flag that? Should a credit card company report me, say, to Homeland Security or the FBI? Guy Relford spent X amount of money. Now, again, they don't know what I bought. But let's say they just intuit based on the amounts. Ooh, this looks like two or three guns. If I spent $2,000 at Indy Arms, I could have just bought a Wilson Combat AR. That's a $2,000 gun. Or I could have bought four or five Ruger pistols. And this code doesn't tell them which. Now, what if I'm buying a whole bunch of guns in repetition? Again, they don't know what I bought. They just know I spent money. But let's say I spend $500 at a gun store, different gun stores, repetitively, every day for two or three months. I'll say every day for three months I spend $500 at a different gun store or some specific amount or some relatively similar amount like $625. Could that be an indication that I'm buying multiple guns from gun stores because I'm turning around and selling them, therefore I must be involved in the unlicensed buying and selling of firearms. In other words, I'm engaged in the business of buying and selling firearms without a license. Theoretically, if I work really hard, I can come up with that justification. But that's not what they're talking about here. They're talking about flagging suspicious transactions to prevent mass shootings. That's what they're talking about. How the hell does this do that? I don't think it does. But I'll tell you what I think the purpose behind this really is. I think it's twofold. One, I think because, again, we're talking about an industry that's all already shown a huge propensity to, disc to discriminate against the firearm industry, as I just talked about, to the point where we've had to introduce a bill for a couple of sessions in a row to say stop discriminating against gun-related businesses, including gun stores. Well, now you're giving the credit card companies a code to say, oh, look, here's a transaction coming in from a gun store. That's what it does tell them. It tells them the amount, and it tells them it's at a gun store. That's where the transaction is. Don't think for a minute that that's not designed to allow credit card companies to start discriminating by simply refusing to process those payments. No, denied. Transactions denied. Why? Because you're transacting with a gun store. We don't want to support the gun industry. We don't want to support people buying and selling firearms. We don't want to support, even though they're licensed by the government, even though they have a federal firearms license, even though they're a completely lawful business, even though they have to put everybody who buys a gun through a background check, we don't like gun stores simply because of the business that they do, because we essentially don't like the Second Amendment. So just like the banks that closed accounts for gun store owners and refused to do business with them to even process their checks, 
just like credit card processing companies who have said, no, we will not process your credit cards at all, period, end of story. Because you're in the gun industry. Like credit card companies have told me, we will not process credit cards, credit card payments for people that want to buy your book. I wrote Gun Safety and Cleaning for Dummies. Gun Safety and Cleaning for Dummies. It's from Wiley & Sons Publication, the, the publisher of all the dummies books for generations. They came to me and asked me to write Gun Safety for Dummies, which I did. We broadened it out to Gun Safety and Cleaning. And I've had credit card companies say, oh, no, that book has to do with guns. We won't process credit card payments for you. Are you kidding me? So you have an industry that's already discriminating against firearms-related businesses. What better way to even potentially put gun stores out of business than to first identify purchases that are coming in from gun stores? just doesn't say like general retail or something like it says now where you don't know it's coming from a gun store. We're going to assign codes to gun stores. Then that code comes in as part of the approval process when somebody runs a card. What about a, a credit card company that simply says, we're going to deny all charges coming in from gun stores? How are you going to stay in business as a gun store if you can't take credit or debit cards? If you're a cash-only business, and look, a lot of us doing business with gun stores are going to go to pure cash anyway because of this crap that we're dealing with. But having said that, not everybody does that. A lot of people don't even carry cash anymore. A lot of people are talking about going to a cashless society completely. So as we move toward a cashless society, what better way to punish, potentially put out of business the firearm industry in terms of local gun stores than for credit card companies to refuse to process payments for, with credit or debit cards. And this code gives them the ability to do that, and it's an industry that's already shown a wanton desire to punish the firearms industry anyway. If you don't think that's part of this agenda, I think you're not paying attention. People are talking about database this, database that. Could they be doing that? Sure. Do I think that's part of it? You bet. Do I think they want to intimidate and threaten anybody who spends a significant amount of money in gun store by having those transactions reported to the government? Yeah, I think that's probably part of it as well. But what you haven't heard people talk about is what I think is really going on here, which is the final step, which is an attempt to put gun stores completely out of business by denying the transactions, by refusing to accept their transactions, which this code, again, allows them to do. So that's something to ponder, and uh, and it's something I think that anyone, including us here at the Gun Guy Show, ought to be extremely concerned about. We're a little past the bottom of the hour, so we're taking a break. We'll be right back. This is Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. By the way, we just had Dave on the line for quite some time, and it looks like he had to drop off. But Dave was calling in, asking for an update on anything going on uh, with the uh, Greenwood Park Mall uh, shooting. And and Dave, I saw you had to drop off. I had you on hold for some time. So my apologies for keeping you on hold as I was addressing some other issues. But there's not much to share. Uh, I have no expectation whatsoever that uh, Eli would, would 
face any possibility of any kind of criminal charges uh, because he obviously was a hero uh, of the Greenwood Park Mall, saved many, 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 many lives, and uh, engaged the threat, man, in 15 seconds, and uh, took on a guy with a rifle and a whole lot of rounds of ammunition on him, took him on starting at 42 yards away. I went to the mall and I lasered it. I took my laser rangefinder. People are saying, oh, it's an exaggeration that uh, Eli Dickin engaged the threat from 40. I must have been 40 feet. No, I uh, I know the exact table he was sitting at. I know exactly where the bad guy was when uh, Eli took him on, and it was 42 yards away. And as released by uh, Chief Eisen down there in Greenwood, uh, Eli made 8 out of 10 shots in a confusing, scary, noisy, panicked environment. Uh, Eli was calm and cool and... and uh, hit his target and stopped a threat and saved countless lives. And, and I, you know, anybody who has looked at that, um, I tell you what, 42 yards in that environment with people screaming and running around you, he had to simultaneously direct his girlfriend out of the harm's way as he's engaging a threat from that far away, took that threat on in 15 seconds and ended the threat. Uh, this is, it's, it's amazing. You could call it superhuman. And, uh, I got to believe, I got to believe. I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up, my dad's a Methodist minister, just really retired at age 88 as a minister. And I got to tell you, my personal theory, ah, man, I don't know, whatever your religious views might be, that's up to you. But I got to tell you, I think the hand of God was on that young man. That's the only explanation I have. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from his inherent skills and his marksmanship, but eight out of 10 shots starting at 42 yards, stopped the threat. Uh, is just simply unbelievable. It's amazing. And when the, all the details on it come out, now, Eli's authorized me to make public statements, but we've decided to only do so when Chief Eisen down in Greenwood announces that his investigation is closed. Last I heard, they were still trying to get information off of the bad guy's cell phone. He, he had thrown it in a toilet before he started his shooting, and it was in there for some time before it was recovered, and the Greenwood police, last I heard, were working with the FBI, trying to get information off of the bad guy's cell phone, primarily to try to uncover some motive for why this guy who lived very close, like within a mile of the mall, showed up, sat in a bathroom for over an hour. I don't know if he was trying to get his nerve up. I don't know what he was doing. And then walked out starting shooting people. And only because of the heroism of uh, Elijah Dickon, uh, was that threat stopped? Again, three innocent people did lose their lives. That's tragic. That's horrible. Um, but I can't imagine how many more people would have lost their lives in a busy mall right at closing time. Uh, guy armed with a rifle and a whole lot of rounds of ammunition could have been a whole heck of a lot worse. So I, I, I think, I think that sometime, and I probably won't live long enough to see it. But I think, who knows? Maybe a grand. A, a, a granddaughter or grandson of someone whose life Eli saved is going to cure cancer or something amazing like that. I'm telling you, it, 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 it is that it is that miraculous to me. Again, I don't take anything away from this young man because he did it. He did it under pressure. Uh, he did it when 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 an awful lot of people needed him. He stepped up. And that's why I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud to be his friend. I'm proud to be his lawyer. Uh, and I'm, you know, and I'm, you know, I'll tell you something else. I'm proud of. I'm proud that we also have the strongest civil immunity law in the country. And uh, Jim Lucas introduced it. Uh, Representative Lucas, I wrote it, and uh, and it says, if you defend yourself or others with a justified use of force, 
you basically cannot be sued by someone who was committing a forcible felony at the time that you had to use force to defend yourself or others. And if you are sued, there's a process to get that lawsuit dismissed very early, and there's a mandatory attorney's fees provision, meaning you get your money back for any legal fees or costs you incurred by having to defend that lawsuit. That's huge. That's big. That was inspired by my client, Kisti Phillips, the hero down in Rising Sun, Indiana, who saved the life of a police officer with deadly force. It applied when I represented the, the hero in Brownsburg, where a guy suffering a complete schizophrenic paranoid breakdown killed a cemetery worker and uh, was trying to kill another one. And my client, from his vehicle, made some incredibly great shots to end that threat. And you know what? Uh, that, that law, that immunity law, protected him because it was in place at that point. And it had a big effect because it dramatically it, it disincentivizes anybody to file a lawsuit in that situation on behalf of the dead bad guy or the injured bad guy, if that's the situation. And here, that statute very clearly protects Eli Dickin as well. So that's a big deal. And I'll tell you what Martin has called. We're, we're at the three-quarter hour, but it looks like Martin wants to talk about Greenwood. So let's go ahead and take this call. Martin, welcome to the Gun Guy Show. Thank you for taking my call, um, Guy. I love listening to your show. Um, Thank you. Little little bit of irony. Um, I know Kisty. I actually worked with her at the same financial institution. Oh, no kidding. Uh, so, yeah. So I, when that situation happened, um, I was I was made aware of that. And, and obviously applaud her heroism in saving, you know, the officer's life. Yep. Um, I, I would like to add to the comment you just made about the death count at the mall. Um, I spoke to a law enforcement officer uh, that was very close to the, to the situation who said that one thing that probably helped with everybody, well, with basically with the with the death count being as low as it was, was the fact that the gentleman that was walking to the bathroom was the first person killed. Yeah. And because he was the first person killed, everyone heard it and started moving. And that's what basically kept it from being far worse than than what it was. Now, mind you, your 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 uh, your client uh completely brave, heroic effort. Um, I attended the prayer vigil that, uh, that the city of Greenwood put on and mayor Mark Myers in no, no less than three times in that, in that speech called him a hero. So everyone, everyone applauded his efforts. Uh, but anyway, just a, just a great job on his part and saving a lot of innocent lives. So kudos to him, and, and thank you for representing him. Oh, my pleasure, Martin, and thanks for adding that bit of insight, and I, I think it's a great point. Yeah, because the first person shot, and, and this person, as I understand it, was actually carrying a firearm, but he's walking into the bathroom, and as he's walking in to the entrance to the bathroom, he looks up, there's a guy pointing a rifle at him, and he gets shot. And you had some of the anti-gun people out there going, oh, well, it did him a lot of good to carry a gun because he was the first one shot. Hey, look, if you got the gun in a holster and all you see coming around the corner walking into a bathroom is a m muzzle of a rifle in your face and it goes boom, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm pretty good at getting a gun out and getting a shot off, but I'm not going to get it out that quick. And so, yes, carrying a gun is not a magic talisman that, that somehow puts you in some kind of a bubble of invincibility. You, someone may get the drop on you. You may not have an opportunity to get that gun out. But to Martin's point, the fact that that happened back at the bathrooms 
gave people some amount of time to react once they heard a gunshot. Having said that, I think it's a valid point, and I'm glad Martin raised it. Having said that, the chief down there, Eisen, confirmed, having watched the tape, that Eli engaged the threat in 15 seconds. Could the guy have killed more people in that 15 seconds, but for that first shot happening back in the hallway where the bathroom is? I think that's where that's a valid point, and, and, I, and I take it for what it's worth. At the same time, 15 seconds is still pretty damn fast and undoubtedly would have saved lives. But I still think it's a completely valid point, and I'm glad Martin called. Tell you what, we're going to take a break and come back for a very short last segment here on The Gun Guy Show. Thanks so much for your calls. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back and wrap things up after this break here on The Gun Guy Show on WIBC. And welcome back for what will be a very brief final segment here on tonight's Gun Guy Show. I'm sorry we came to you a little bit late, but it was great to uh, to listen to a thrilling win. By the way, our own John Herrick, you know, of the WIBC newsroom, um, is now uh, on the broadcast team uh, f- uh, for Clearfield and uh, and bringing you IU football. He will also be on the team bringing you IU basketball. That's our own uh, John Herrick, also a DePaul University grad, I am proud to say. So listening to John now is just so thrilling because he, he's maintaining his responsibilities here at WIBC in the newsroom, but also now doing those broadcasts uh, for, is it Learfield? I always, is, yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry, I always screwed that up. Um, but uh, doing a great job. He's fabulous on the radio. Um, but speaking of the newsroom, um, you heard Sasha Nixon at the top of the hour from our WIBC newsroom mention that today's Constitution Day. 200, and by my math, 235 years ago, uh, today, September 17th, the Constitution was signed. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I'm, I'm, while I'm slightly disappointed that our Supreme Court has allowed um, the intent of the founders to slip away on us a little bit in terms of the Constitution itself, um, it's still the most wonderful document in the history of human civilization in terms of the formation of a government. It's, it's this beautiful experiment that we call America, and the Constitution is something to be celebrated. Constitution Day is a big deal. I also always celebrate uh, the, the anniversary of when this, the, uh, not just the Second Amendment, but the entire Bill of Rights was ratified. That was December 15th, 1791. Put that one on your calendar, too. So this is this beautiful experiment we call America. It's the most enduring democracy and constitutional republic we've ever seen. It's beautiful. It's elegant. And while it has its faults, it's the best there's ever been in terms of the formation of a government on the face of this earth. So let's celebrate that as we go through the rest of our weekend. Right now, that brings us to the end of this week's Gun Guy Show. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope come back next week. This is Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on WIBC.